When you're flying at 40,000 feet above mean sea level on a Bombardier Global 6500 private jet, what do you see? A limitless horizon, woolly clouds, and a setting sun glistening on your face. Tough to say if that changed the mood for Gautam Adani, who had all the reason to fly high. Just a day before, on Tuesday, 31st of January, he was in Tel Aviv, shaking hands with Israeli Premier Benjamin Netanyahu at the ceremonial handover of the Haifa port, a multi-billion dollar strategic asset that Mr. Adani is co-developing, a key gateway of a mega Indo-Gulf freight corridor that passes all the way through the Arabian Peninsula into Jordan and then Israel to connect Greece and beyond. Successfully entered Israel through its acquisition of the Haifa port, where the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin... Mr. Adani's $2.5 billion follow-on share sale had also scraped past the finishing line while he was in Israel. On January 24, U.S. short seller firm Hindenburg Research released an investigative report levelling serious allegations against the Adani group. Even after a damning report from Hindenburg Research, a short seller from New York accused him, India's infrastructure czar, of engaging in brazen stock manipulation and account fraud just a week back. Adani managed to pull through with ample help from strategic allies in Abu Dhabi and nudge from fellow Gujarati billionaire industrialists and a sundry motley of ultra-high net worth individuals and family officers. And high net worth individuals rescued Adani Enterprises' uh, 20,000 crore rupee follow-on public offer on the last day. But what transpired in the next few hours shook the foundation of the once invincible group, its loyalists, and many a market pundit. So let me take you through those sequence of events as it happened on the 1st of February. Even during the flight back from India, Mr. Adani kept getting calls from investors whose bets had taken a bath in the Adani Enterprises FBO. Some were his buddies from back home, some from the Gulf, like the International Holding Corporation, the anchor investor to the issue. Anxious retail investors had also started writing to the stock market regulator, asking them to intervene and help pull them out of the issue. In Parliament, the Modi government was on the back foot, heckled by an opposition that had tasted blood. With a brutal sell-off in Adani Group shares wiping out the market value of more than $80 billion in a week. The Adani Group had stolen the thunder from the Modi government's last budget before the general elections next year. 
I'd like to bring to your uh, notice a very disturbing fact related to our oil sector PSUs as per my parliamentary question answered by the Honourable Minister. IOCL and Gale, which are our public sector undertakings, have signed a 46,500 crore use or pay contract for the LNG terminal at Dhamra. Use or pay means whether they require it or not, whether they use it or not, whether the connecting pipeline is built or not. This was done and given to the Adani group for 46,500 crores with no tender. By evening, it became clear the government will not lean in and help. Quite the contrary, as speculation of a cancel meeting with the powers that be in Delhi also started gathering momentum. At 3.30 p.m. that fateful afternoon, Gautam Adani's core team met in Ahmedabad, did the maths and figured out if this bloodbath continues, then on the 7th of February, when the FPO was to open, investors would have been staring at more than 60 to 70% listing losses. Mr. Adani immediately called for an Adani Enterprises board meeting. 6 p.m., the board met and understood the situation was becoming untenable. Between 7 and 10 p.m., all administrative steps had to be completed and key stakeholders like the regulators' exchanges informed. Finally, post 10 p.m., on budget day, Gautam Adani decided to pull the trigger. But considering the volatility of the market seen yesterday, our board strongly felt that it would not have been morally correct to proceed with the FPO. In my humble journey of over four decades as an entrepreneur, I have been blessed to receive overwhelming support from all stakeholders and particularly the investor community. It is important for me to confess that whatever little I have achieved in life is due to the faith and trust reposed by them. I owe all my success to them. For me, the interest of my investor is paramount and everything is secondary. Hence, to insulate the investors from potential losses, we have withdrawn the FPO. It's Tuesday, the 7th of February, and the Adani stocks continue to be volatile. By now, losing over 110 billion in just 14 days since the Hindenburg short sellers report became public. There seems to be no let up in the crisis for the Indian Empire, at least for now. Their wealth is continuing to fall. How much is the potential of this drama likely to hurt the Indian economy and indeed confidence within it in terms of corporate governance and more? From the Economic Times, I'm your host, Arijit Barman, and you're listening to Where Does Gautam Adani Go From Here on The Morning Brief. Over the next two episodes, we will go back and forth in time, look ahead, but ask experts to connect the dots backwards and tell us if the Adani meltdown threatens to undermine investor confidence in India more broadly and in the nation's regulatory framework. As S&P 
Dow Jones indices last Thursday evening removed Adani Enterprises from its sustainability index. How will the group claw back and regain investor confidence in both equity and bond markets? In today's episode, the first of two parts, we deep dive with the former JP Morgan, Barclays, Merrill Lynch Chief Investment Officer, who now advises wealth management clients and family offices in Singapore, Dubai and UK about what was optically wrong with the FPO, the lessons learned and what should be the one week, the one month and the one year plan for Adani's to try and strike back. I think the two and a half billion was seen for what it was which was a capital raise amongst friends and family, and therefore it just wasn't going to wash with the markets. We've got to find the bottom, and only when we find the bottom do we find new investment going in. But this is a story with wider implications. So in part two on Thursday, we will try and figure out what is the inner risk contagion from global investors and economists like Alicia Garcia Herrero, Chief Economist Asia-Pacific, at Natixis Bruges, a French financial services group. I think it's very important to, you know, cut and continue. Mm. If I were the Indian government, what I would try to do here, I know it's a private company, so you need to keep it as such. You need to show that it has nothing to do with you and you can keep that distance. And I think that's essentially what could revert this negative spiral, in my view. Also, The diplomatic repercussions, especially in the Middle East. In Abu Dhabi, Qatar, the biggest global backers of Adani in recent times. From Pramit Pal Chaudhary, head of South Asia practice at risk consultancy firm Eurasia Group, also a fellow at the Ananta Aspen Center. My guess would be that first, if I'm UAE, I would first look to the Modi government, I'd look to the Indian government and say, are you still all right with these people? Because in many ways, it's because of you that I've decided to side up with them. For the last one week, Gary Dugan, now the CEO of Purple Asset Management and the global CIO office, has been staring at the Bloomberg screen like many of his trader friends. A sea of red as equity investors panicked. And panicked even more. A whole lot more as the bondholders also joined the circus. $20 billion, $50 billion, $80 billion, $100 billion. Beyond that, any wipeout seems futile, but just another benchmark getting breached. Gary, you know, you've been a market participant for several decades as an asset manager, wealth manager with various firms. I want to ask something upfront on a personal level. When was the last time you actually seen something like this in the recent past? You know, cataclysmic, so to speak. I'd have to go back a long time. I mean, I was racking my brain, quite honestly, about you know events that may have taken place in the UK. I'm going back to the 80s and 90s with the profound problems we had around a certain individual called Robert Maxwell, you know, where basically family businesses get into trouble with the markets. I think many people from outside India looking in see this particular family right at the heart of the markets, right at the heart of the Indian industry. And I don't think there's a parallel to that in the global economy because 
to be honest, you know, if you look at the very major markets, they're not dominated by single families. So contrasting this with uh, developed countries is very difficult. And the emerging markets, there are already smaller examples, but not something on this scale. And who has faced both the upswing and then the downward spiral? The problem, of course, for this particular situation, the Adani share price have gone up over a thousand percent in three years. I mean, mm. that's really off the charts completely. Uh, sorry the pun, but you know, you don't really see this scale of upside, and hence the downside is commensurate with the upside, and that's of course mm-hmm. something again we've not seen for decades. True, true. So this in your mind, is a classic David versus Goliath kind of a story? We all like to try and put some kind of framework around what's going on. Mm -hmm. But um, having kind of been concerned at the real substantial rise in price and the collapse, I'd say it's more of a, it's an evolution rather than revolution. And I think there's a lot of people wanting to characterize it out there as a revolution. This is a terrible thing happening. But actually, it's an evolution where big families that are dominated markets you know, when they go into those capital markets, they're not such big guys. And when they come up against big banks and big research houses, they realize um, what they're letting themselves in for in raising capital abroad. Now, despite, let's look at the facts. Despite the Hindenburg report, they did manage to raise two and a half billion dollars in the follow-on issue. And then panic set in. And that's the odd part that why did panic set in when you've actually managed to raise the money? I think it was the nature of the capital raise. Look, let's be honest. If you've supported this family and its businesses for a couple of decades, and they say, listen, we're in trouble a little bit here. Can you help us out? A lot of people will step forward and put their money in. I think almost somewhat blindly, quite frankly, but they want to be supportive. And they also want to support the investments they've already made in that company. So I think the two and a half billion was seen for what it was which was a capital raise amongst friends and family. I mean, that in a broad sense. And therefore, it just wasn't going to wash with the markets. So it was more like a preferential allotment rather than a public issuance, so to speak, with the retail investor completely staying out of it, mutual funds largely staying out of it. And as you said, friends and family, so to speak, bailing him out. Yeah, and I wouldn't call it preferential because I think a lot of those investors were then facing quite serious losses on that new investment they would be making. So, yeah, I mean, as I said, I think it was a vain attempt to prop things up, but it was coming at the wrong time. You've got to allow your share price to go down to where it's a fair value, settle, and then do your capital raise. Let's now look at the debt market, the bonds. Would you say that the debt markets, which primarily work on leverage, started panicking when organizations like Credit Suisse, City stopped accepting their bonds and other securities that's collateral because the worry then was it's going to be a domino effect. If one bank does it, others will follow suit. Yes, it is. And in fact, the parallel with that will be the global financial crisis where something that looked okay in the morning Once one lender says, by the way, I can't take this as collateral anymore, everyone has to follow. You know, risk officers, quite frankly, these days don't take risk. Yeah. And they they basically revert to zero risk when things get tough. So I think that's, in essence, what happened. To be honest, again, when you see a share price fall this much, there's no way that the debt instrument is going to get away with it. It's going to follow the equity. And that's what happened. Yeah we saw a rather mixed outlook from the rating agencies. On one extreme was Fitch, which was more or less positive. 
Moody's was neutral with some cautionary note. Standard and Poor's on the other extreme were actually pretty negative. So is the debt market still anxious that perhaps we're staring at a downgrade? I think it is. Absolutely. I mean, there's a huge reassessment going on. People get into a frame of mind that because someone else lent some money, it must be fine. And then that company who wants to lend money to the same company, you know, tries to grab market share and everything gets reinforced. That's getting reinforced in a positive way where that's a great company. I want to lend to it. And then when someone pulls out, then everyone else wants to pull out. So unfortunately, we have these cycles in capital markets. In the case of Adani at the moment, rating agencies are kind of falling over each other to have the lowest rating. We've got to find the bottom. Only when we find the bottom do we find new investment going in. Yeah, and nobody wants to catch a falling knife, as they say. The bonds are still trading at distress levels. I think the problem here is... When do I know as an investor or as a research analyst that I've got a complete picture of what is happening in that company? If someone said to me, where will this company be in two, three years ago? I'm sure it's going to rebuild itself in terms of credibility. It's got some fantastic businesses, but it has to get through the next few months. And it's going to have to realize that whatever the market decides the price is for either the bond or the equity is the price. And then you've got to rebuild from there. So in your mind, what happens next? I think it'll be, basically the action will be in the capital markets. We're going to find out what is the clearing price between buyers and sellers. I know that sounds simplistic, but, you know, for a share price that has gone up as much as it has over the last three years, you know, 1,300%, I think, at the peak. Where is the bottom in terms of correction? Does it go back down completely or does it unwind half of that? It's very difficult to know because the metrics on the company evaluation was so off the charts. I mean, I don't have to buy into the Hindenburg that it was 83% overvalued. Let's just call it 50%, 60%. We have to get down to those kind of levels and a further discount for the volatility we've had, settle down, and then see when the new investment comes in. True. But would you say, fortunately, at least the business fundamentals still look robust. I'm not talking about valuations. I'm talking about hardcore EBITDA. I'm talking about hardcore top line. And these are utility businesses, in many cases, regulated with assured revenue flow. That's the saving grace. Totally agree with you. I mean, I would make a profound statement. This is no scam, right? This is not like an empty vessel. This is a hardcore industrial company Mm. with many, many positives about it in terms of what it does. Mm. We're talking about the value of that company, not whether or not it's a good or bad company. Everyone, I think, would agree it's a good company with some fantastic businesses with good long-term growth. But what price you put on it? And the price we have was an extreme And we have to go through the reassessment of that. Yeah, and that's the irrational part. The markets were fine and cheered when it was going up all the way 1,300%. It's unbelievable. Their renewable company was the most valuable stock in the world at one point, even more valuable than Apple and Tesla. So, you know, the pendulum swung one way and then it swung completely the other way in the last seven days. It did. And I can give you a comparator with that. My experience back in the first quarter of 2000, I won't say who I was sitting in front of, but let's just say 30 captains of industry in the United States. And they asked me, what did I think about the NASDAQ? And I said it would fall 70%. Mm. And I gave them five minutes to go out and sell all their shares and no one moved and they all laughed. You know, 
And of course, it did fall 70% because it was, again, price. The price was wrong. Great long-term fundamentals for the tech industry, but the price was too high. I think the Adani share price at the moment is going through that kind of cycle. Would you say that this is perhaps the first time in India or in Asia we are seeing ESG, or at least the G aspect of ESG, which is governance, really coming on mainstream. People are actually putting a premium or a discount to governance issues. It is. And it's come about because of share price, not because people have just certainly woken up to governance or want to demonstrate on governance. It's basically saying your share price can't be that high if you're going to have that lack of transparency and lack of governance. Because if you want to be on that kind of multiple, you've got to be a perfect company. All right, India, emerging countries can't be perfect. But I do think it's awoken a very good conversation about governance. And I think, I hope every company is now reassessing, by the way, do we really need the whole family on the board? Or do we need to bring in more independent advisors? Many, many different aspects of this governance thing. But I think it will be a force for positive. It'll be a force that puts Indian corporates on the kind of level of compliance with international standards, which can only be good news to the stock market long term. True. And if you were the CFO, what's the first thing that you will do? What's the one-week contingency plan? The contingency plan is go and talk to people, talk to the market, ask them what they want, ask them what will convince them to remain with their equity or debt instruments, particularly their debt instruments, talk to the banks, what do I need to do? And you must do it. You must then present a plan that is very comprehensive in order to get the confidence back. Thereafter, what do you do? In the next three months, do you have to stabilize the ship and then show the market and investors a path to fundraise? Yeah, it's a tough one. You know, I think there's always an issue of ego in big companies and particularly at the top, whether you're a family business or whether you're a true public business. And we've got to have a little less ego and we've got to have a lot of listening to the markets and asking, what do I need to do to convince you that this share price is right? How do I get a more positive story out there? So I think over a period of time, I'm not sure it's going to become come through immediately because I think it's tough for a family business to change this radically. But you are going to see a, have to see a dilution of uh, family board members on the board. You're going to have to see a great deal more transparency around the accounts. And you've got to address this issue. You know, Are you a public company or are you a private company? If you want to be a private company, you know, then go to 100% again, but do not sit there with just 25% of your equity in private hands and then assume that you can do what you like. You know, I think there's a, a major reassessment. It does mean, I think, in the longer term, they have to sell more of their shares onto the market and become a true public side company. Correct. And because they have been haunted by this specter of these FBIs acting as proxies of fronts of the family, even before Hindenburg, it predates Hindenburg. You know, it keeps coming up periodically. The company, of course, in their defense says, what can we do? Go and ask them. They are investors. But this is no longer actually washing it. That's right. And I go back to the comment I made right at the beginning, evolution versus revolution. Mm -hmm. We need a little bit of revolution in this one because you cannot, as I said, you cannot sit on that threshold. You cannot really ask international investors sitting on Wall Street, London or wherever to believe you when you say that there's other parties who keep moving up and down in share price holdings 
which enables you to continue to have almost absolute control over the direction of the company. So please just get to international standards and then you'll get a good valuation and you'll get the buy-in of the markets. True. Do you, based on today's assessment, foresee possible asset sales as well? I don't think so. I mean, I think if they're really pushed into a very harsh corner, there may be assets that they will sell. They certainly won't want to sell what I would call crown jewels right in mm. core of their business. But they may be forced to sell you know, one or other of the subsidiary businesses they've got in order to have the capital at hand to take a bit better control of the situation. But would you say that the headwinds are currently so strong that raising debt or refinancing the existing debt also at a time when bond markets overall is shut because of the raising interest rate environment around the world will make it that much more difficult for them to actually access global markets for capital, especially debt capital. Yes, sadly so. I mean, you would not want to go through a restructuring in the midst of a, a global environment where everyone is watching how far the Fed pushes interest rates coming off the back of two decades where interest rates, quite frankly, have been close to zero, where the premiums that uh, emerging countries have to pay for both their debt and equity issuance, of course, is rising, not falling. So this is not uh, certainly not an ideal situation, probably one of the worst environments we've seen in probably the last 10 years. So the last thing I wanted to ask you is, would you say that therefore do not expect big bang M&As in the next you know, foreseeable future. It's time now to sit back, reassess, recalibrate, and get the house in order instead of showing growth, 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 and more growth. Yeah, I'm in two minds on this one. Number one is, if you just said, this kind of company in this kind of situation, absolutely, you really need to reset and get everything straight. But you know, they're also deeply in the future of India and the huge amount of infrastructure projects that they're committed to. And I think all of us around the world want to see India continue to make great progress in terms of developing its infrastructure. So I hope it gets well-funded on the places that are crucial to the whole of India and its future, and other areas will probably have to wait. So what's the key takeaway from Gary's chat? Focus on governance, transparency, evolve, and professionalize the setup. Come to think of it, Gautam Adani's spectacular loss of wealth happened almost as fast as Elon Musk, who has been the first person in history to lose $200 billion. But Musk since then has bounced back in a big way. Adani most certainly has lost more money than crypto wonder kid Sam Bankman-Fried or Archegas Capital Management's Bill Huang, who went from billions to bust in a flash after leverage trades imploded. Mr. Adani's wealth creation is certainly more than Brazilian Ike Batista, who similarly used his commodities empire to build national infrastructure like shipyards and ports with support from the government. But it took Batista a year to lose his entire $35 billion fortune. But then, why is the Adani story getting so much global scrutiny? Because the rise of Gautam Adani mirrors that of our Prime Minister. 
beyond the five-year 2,500% rally in Adani Enterprises' share price, the subtext that the fulcrum of the Adani Colossus is closely aligned to the country's economic program that builds on capital-intensive infrastructure like clean energy and mega airports, railways, sports, data centers, 5G, telecom and urbanization is not lost on anyone. Naturally, efforts were on to drown out the short sellers' acquisition in loud drumbeats of muscular nationalism. A jingoistic social media feasted on this din, calling it a brazen attack of the white colonizer. Even Group CFO Jukshinder Robi Singh made it amply clear when he said, The report is a malicious combination of selective misinformation, stale, baseless and discredited allegations that have been tested and rejected by India's highest courts. The timing of the report's publication clearly betrays a brazen, malified intention to undermine Adani Group's reputation with the principal objective of damaging the upcoming follow-on public offering from Adani Enterprise, the biggest FPO by a private sector company in India. The investor community has always reposed faith in Adani Group on the basis of detailed analysis, disclosures, and reports published by financial experts and leading national and international credit rating agencies. Our informed and knowledgeable investors are not influenced by one-sided, motivated, and unsubstantiated reports with vested interests. My take. The Adani Group is on full damage control mode, planning to prepay large parts of Gautam Adani's loans taken against shares, or LAS as they call it, a portfolio of seven to 8,000 crore rupees taken at shareholder level, which are backed by share pledges to soothe investor concerns. The plan is to start reducing the last exposure immediately and bring it down preferably to zero over the next 30 to 45 days. Again, some debt facilities even offer 2x more share cover as additional buffer. In fact, by the time we finished recording, Mr. Adani and his family said they have already prepaid $1.1 billion worth of borrowings backed by shares, sending positive messages to investors. But politically, what the Modi government does next has great stakes for India. The Adani-Modi relationship has become an hyphenated one, as pointed out repeatedly by none other than the Congress leader Rahul Gandhi. Hindustan ke sub ports, Hindustan ke sub airport, power, transmission, mining, green energy, gas distribution, edible oils, jo bhi Hindustan mein hota hai, udhar Adani ji dikhai dete hai. Mr. Adani has always been one of Prime Minister Modi's biggest champions in business. And his net worth rose along with the Modi wave from about $7 billion in 2014 to more than $100 billion before the Hindenburg Report, making him one of the world's richest people. But while the Hindenburg Report is a masterclass of how globalized money and financial markets can make or break a multi-billionaire's empire within days, pulling the rug from under one's feet sitting across continents 
our policymakers and regulators should ought to intervene about money getting routed through tax havens and Mauritius in a balanced yet effective way. It's time to wake up and smell the coffee. You have been listening to part 1 of Where does Gautam Adani go from here with me your host Arjit Barman on the morning brief. Thanks Gary, Pramit and Alicia for the insights. Deeply appreciate it. Big shout out to the team that worked behind the episode. Audio engineer Rajesh Nayak, producer Sumit Pandey, executive producers Anupriya Bahadur, Anirban Chaudhary and yours truly. We hope you liked this episode. Do share the episode on your social media network. All clips used in this episode belong to their respective owners. Credits mentioned in the description. In the next episode we will delve deeper into the Indo-UAE relationships with Pramit Pal Chaudhary of Eurasia Group. Initially Modi began when he goes overseas, but he doesn't go to the UAE or he doesn't go to the Gulf. And the word I heard was that UAE didn't send a message to India. Why isn't Prime Minister Modi interested in us? So the message came back that look, we India doesn't have a problem with UAE, but look, you have a relationship with Pakistan that we have concerns with. He said, no, we want you to come and let's talk about this. And also examine with Alicia Garcia Herrero if this Adani saga could be India's Petrobras moment. that rocked brazil between 2014 and 2017 it's just the narrative of the story that can actually make investors pause right because it was too fast from the beginning on the upside and let alone the downside and investors don't like those stories the morning brief drops every tuesday thursdays and fridays and is available on spotify apple podcast amazon and google podcast as well as geo seven Do tune in to ET Play our latest platform for all audio content including the morning brief goodbye and good luck <laughs>